any college sophomore can find their strengths. That that isn't what leads to leadership. What leads to leadership is struggling through challenge and developing strengths you don't even know about when you go to college. Welcome to Voices from the Middle, a podcast where we talk about career management, organizational life, and all things related to leadership. I'm especially pleased to have a special guest today, Bob Eichinger. Bob brings more than five decades of experience working, teaching, and consulting and coaching. And many of you know Bob as the co-founder and CEO of Lomager International. Prior to Lomager, he was with Pillsbury, where he led management and executive development. At PepsiCo, in his corporate role, he led executive development across the entire organization. Uh, I met Bob in 1995 after he and Mike Lombardo had recently started their company. And on a personal note, I'm very appreciative to both of these gentlemen. Uh, They taught me a lot, and they gave me an opportunity to work with many companies in the U.S. and internationally. Uh, Bob's been busy. He likes to make things. He's authored over 50 books, articles, software products, and other intellectual property tools all around the issue of talent management and succession planning. And since 2006, he's spent most of his time studying neuroleadership with the goal of developing tools for managers and executives to manage their brain resources more effectively. And he's taken all his resources and his knowledge and started a new company with his colleague, uh, Roger Pearman. And uh, this is a company called uh, Team Intelligent that we'll hear more about. And I wanted to start, though, uh, Bob, by... uh, First of all, some of our listeners might not know about Lominger in the early days of what we call strategic HR. So why don't you tell people about that experience and maybe the earlier work with CCL as well, and then you can bring us up to speed with your latest venture. And again, Bob, really glad that you could join us this morning. Well, thank you, Michael. Um, The Lominger story begins at PepsiCo, where I was head of global talent. And my boss called me into his office one day and said, go find the best research on leadership in the world and implement it here at Pepsi. So I'm quite excited about that. So I went back and had my staff begin to look at who's doing leadership research and ran into INSEAD and France and various other institutes. And uh, I'm a little embarrassed because I was unaware at that time of the Center for Critical Leadership. So I was not aware that there was an institute in the United States looking at talent and leadership right under our nose. So I jumped on the Pepsi airplane and went down to CCL and met with Mike and Morgan and Randy White and others. And said, tell me about your research. And I was absolutely blown away by what they were doing in the lessons of experience study. And I said, how can we get involved? And they said, well, we have a a sponsors program for $25,000 a year. Uh, Why don't you go back to New York and meet with your people and see whether that would work for you? And I made a quick phone call in the old days, not on a flip phone, but landline, talked to my boss for two minutes, came back in the room and said, we're in. Where would you like us to send the check? So I became a sponsor of the research with uh, eight other companies. And it was about halfway through at that point, the research and the eight of us helped the center research staff guide what they looked for. It turns out that the center is actually a university. Uh, 
the research staff, most of them have never had a real job. So they're, they're academic, um, very good academics. And they didn't know what they were studying and they didn't know how it applied in the real world. So uh, they studied derailment as an example. And at a research sponsors meeting, they basically said, well, okay, we know these are the eight things that derail people. What, what would you do with that in a company? Like, where would that apply? So the eight of us would get together for a few minutes and come back and say, okay, uh, here's, here's how succession planning works. Here's how derailment would fit into the system. Here's how we assess talent. So our job was to translate the center's phenomenal findings in the Lessons of Experience study, which was published, I think, in 83. And companies started to come to the center for a briefing. And in the morning, the center staff would lay out all of this phenomenal research. It was exciting. They would have a wonderful lunch at the CCL kitchen, come back at 1.30 for Q&A. And the poor center staff, five of them would be sitting up on the dais and the, the people would say, well, uh, how does this apply in a succession planning meeting when you have two candidates who are different in the following? Well, they, none of them have ever attended a succession planning session in a real company. So Mike and I decided that we needed to create a vehicle. So we created a course called Developing Tools for Effective Executives. Um, he and I taught it for about five years, 228 Fortune 500 companies came through that course. And in order to teach that course, we needed uh, some competencies to work with. At the time, uh, the center's 360 benchmarks wasn't really in a competency format. So we created a set of competencies. Mike looked at all of the research and we created the card deck that those of you in the audience who are part of the Lumminger following eventually ended up in Lumminger. Mike and I gave that card deck to the center saying, how would you like to publish this? How would you like to sell it out of the store? How do you want to manage this? And in September of 1991, we got a letter from the center saying, this is spectacular stuff, but we are very busy and we can't handle this at the moment. So. <laughs> Why don't you and Mike do whatever you want to do with this? And oh, by the way, we've attached a letter of release to all of our intellectual property that the two of you can use. Wow. Well, that was that was September of 1991. And on a Friday afternoon at 4.15, we created Lumminger. Uh, neither one of us wanted to. Uh, neither one of us were interested in starting a company. Uh, we blissfully thought that the center was going to publish the stuff and sell it and ship it and inventory it and do all those wonderful things. Uh, but that's not how it occurred. And so 21 years later, 12,000 customers around the world, uh, we created the FYI book, which if it were published, would be the leading management publication ever done. Uh, we have sold over uh, a million of those. Uh, and then we passed on Lumminger to Corn Ferry because we needed an international presence and they already had 44 offices throughout the country. Um, and I stayed there for three years to manage the integration. I left in 2009 
and immediately studied what had sort of been in the back of my mind for 10 years, which is the new neural leadership research and how that impacted talent management. So since 2009, I've been studying uh, neural leadership and Roger Pearman had been our partner in creating the U-book in the Lumminger years, the Myers-Briggs manual. And so he and I decided to start Team Intelligent and to create an updated, fresh set of tools for managing talent. So my career has been very narrow. It's only been on one thing, which is talent. I'm obsessed by excellence in all areas of life. That's why I collect Tiffany. Uh, uh, so I've, I've always been obsessed with learning why it is that some individuals are able to produce outstanding, excellent products and services. And so I've spent my entire career in talent. That's a great recap. Not a bad summary for 20 plus years. Bob, let me go back to you know how and when we met. I had been doing, uh, like a number of people, a number of my colleagues who were associates, independent uh, leadership development, coaching, et cetera. And one of the things that struck all of us, I think, at the time that was kind of new, perhaps, was the idea of, quote, strategic HR. And uh, why don't you, for some of our, for some of the younger listeners, that, that concept might not be familiar. And maybe you could talk about the evolution of that idea and where we are today when we talk about the role of HR in corporations, both small and large? I'd have to give a lot of credit to my mentor, David Ulrich, who is really the father of getting HR to the strategic table. So I'm, I'm not going to take major credit for that. But I was on the board of the Human Resource Planning Society, and this is a group of 1,500 professionals that manage talent around the world. And... David and I worked on several projects together of giving HR a voice at the strategic table. And that sounds sort of weird now, but in those days, HR didn't have the status. They might, in fact, not even physically be invited to strategic sessions. Then we had the war for talent, and all of a sudden, CEOs became quite concerned about whether they had the talent necessary to fund the strategic vision and the strategic plan of the organization. And they looked around for somebody in the company to help them uh, with this talent proposition. And for those of you who are old enough, the, the history of HR used to be labor. Uh, when I was at Pepsi HR, the majority of the uh, CHROs of the eight divisions and the CHRO of PepsiCo in total all came up through labor relations. So HR was made up of people who read balance sheets, who understood the numbers, who negotiated contracts. And, and in the East Coast, they were negotiating with the mafia, literally. They checked guns in uh, at the negotiating table before they started the meeting. I mean, literally, everybody put their guns on a table. <laughs> so it was a pretty tough world that these HR people came up through. And so uh, they were quite uh, likely to be invited to key meetings because they could talk business. When I got into HR later, uh, that disappeared and HR became softer. We had the uh, women's movement, 
and they came from being telephone operators and secretaries and nurses and they began to enter business and one of the key places they entered they really entered in two places they entered in marketing and hr and so we had extremely talented uh, women coming in from the humanities into hr and hr became concerned with diversity and uh, political correctness and fair treatment and all the other things that HR should be interested in. But what they lost was business credibility. So that's the point that David and I sort of started the issue of getting HR back to the strategic table and giving HR the credibility. And we thought that the way to do that is through talent. Uh, so Lumminger was created, as was DDI, as was Egon Zender, as was PDI, to produce a portfolio of tools to help HR people have a critical say at the strategic table. So when somebody said, let's go do strategy A, HR was there to either say, well, that's very cute, but we don't have the talent on board to do that, or if you want to do strategy A, then we have to do the following three talent management programs in the meantime in order to get the bench, bench strength where it needs to be. So our thought at the time is the trick to get HR to the table was to get better at specifically talent management, not, not the management of HR and benefits and compensation and affirmative action and all the other things that HR uh, is in and should be in, but to create this specialist. And it's been successful in the sense that a lot of larger corporations, as you know, have a chief people officer who does not report to the CHRO. So in those large companies where talent is a critical asset, many times the head of talent reports to the CEO or to the president, or even in a couple extreme cases to the board. So that's what we were trying to do in developing these tool sets uh, and giving HR the credibility by being invited because they know how to attract people, how to orient people, how to develop people, how to move them through management jobs and how to get them ready. And uh, in the Lumminger world, we created assignmentology. So uh, Mike and I and Roger studied how jobs build leaders, which came through the research findings of the center through what everybody knows is 70-20-10. So the majority of leaders tell us that they became who they are based on going through challenging jobs. So the practical question is, what exact jobs are you talking about? So uh, in the Lumminger years, we had 15 of those jobs. We now have 21 of them in Team Intelligence. So succession planning is the combination of attracting people of potential who, if put in a series of challenging job of a known research finding, would end up adding value in the C-suite 10, 15 years later. Uh, those tools now exist. There are thousands of talent management professionals who have been trained in those tools, whichever vendor they selected. Um, and they now can have a seat at the table to talk about peopling strategy. So it's sort of easy to say, well, why don't we beat Walmart and Costco uh, 
in logistics. And the HR talent person should say, interesting idea. <laughs> Here's the kind of C-suite logistics executives you would need, and you would need about 10 of them to take on Walmart and Costco. Uh, we don't have any of those. We can buy them for you at one and a half times what they would cost you if we developed them inside through a search procedure. But of course, we know from research that if we search them in, somebody's going to search them out. So we're about 15 years from being able to beat Walmart on pricing because of the efficiency of the logistics system, or like Gap would be another example. So again, uh, that was the thought. And uh, we've, we've produced and graduated 10,000 talent management professionals who have access to these tools and who have the knowledge. Now, what's left, Michael, is do they have the gravitas, the charisma, the chutzpah from a personality standpoint to be in a room of C-suite executives and or board members and make their case? Uh, we find that right now that's the major problem we have. It's, it's not the tools. They exist. They work. Everybody has access to them. Lots of people have been certified and trained. CEOs are aware of the existence of good talent management professionals. They may or may not have one. The, the problem we have left is personal executive presence in the head of talent or the CHRO, if that's the way it's organized in the organization. Bob, let's stay with this for a mo moment. Um, given this, I understand what you're saying. Given the circumstances today with COVID, a lot of the HR folks that I talk to are dealing with putting out fires and the demands of the current situation, which is to say, all this strategic stuff sounds good, but right now I've got to make sure that the facility is clean. All of this is strategic stuff sounds important, but right now I'm just overwhelmed with people trying to work remotely or uh, trying to handle all the absenteeism. What What is your counsel or, you know, what, what do you say to those folks? Well, I think that's the job of operational functional HR, not talent management HR. So uh, in, the, in the few clients that I'm working with at age 80 still, uh, there are task forces right now working on remote operations and remote management. Uh, every journal that I get and see has a big article on remote management. So the academic community has attacked remote management. The professional associations have webcasts on remote management. On the other hand, uh, Roger and I just did a little research study to answer the question of who do you need during VUCA? So in a case of a black swan like COVID-19, unanticipated, and companies are struggling, and, and depending upon what area you and you might have been without revenue for the past six months, I, I would imagine that that's fairly stuff, tough. <laughs> so we did a study of what kind of leaders get you out of VUCA, and we looked at the specific characteristics of leaders who are successful getting organizations either back on track or restarted or even flourishing under high challenge volatility. To our surprise, what the answer was, it's the same people that we label as high potential. Makes sense. And why is that? Well, high potentials operate out of the comfort zone. 
they specialize in creativity and innovation. They're easily bored with doing routine. They respond passionately to challenge. And it's exactly the population that you would engage in your organization. And one of our recommendations is that you form a community of high potentials in your company based on the succession planning data, even if they're individual contributor high potentials two years out of college. I mean, I would like to know who decided to spell ambulance backwards on the front of an ambulance. So if it's in back of you and you look in your rear view mirror, it doesn't say blah. So A, I'll bet you that an individual contributor somewhere <laughs> down in the guts of the organization figured out how to put the name of the ambulance backwards on the, on the hood. So we recommended that you get all of your uh, high potentials together in a, an electronic community and said, okay, how are we gonna get out of this? If, if we can only have 25% in our Taco Bells at a time, how, how are we gonna flourish in this setting? Uh, if we can't open our exercise studios, what what are we going to do? Well, uh, some individual contributor said, well, put the stuff in an RV and we'll drive around neighborhoods of people with exercisers and we can do three at a time in the RV and we'll park around the neighborhoods in the morning and people can do their exercise routine and we'll come back at 5.30 when the, the night exercise. I mean, so... It turns out that a community of high potentials are the people who can get you out of VUCA. They've got the same characteristics that we look for in the talent management process. Bob, that makes a lot of sense uh, to me. I'm, I, uh, I, I, I'm curious about your, I was curious about your comments about how the market is receiving that. I did want to ask you, Lominger uh, was in the middle of and maybe started the quote competency movement. Do you find that that word is still in use, or is that like the nine cell, like that's so yesterday we need something new? And where does team intelligence stand within this whole conversation about quote competencies? Uh, two years ago, when Roger and I decided to build the suite of tools, we talked to CHROs that we knew, and we detected competency fatigue. Uh, and then we looked at the professional journals and there were articles beginning on the competency fatigue. That is line management was getting sick of competency models, whether they were developed inside or outside. And then David Rock from the Neural Leadership Institute came and blew up competencies uh, and uh, is on a simplification mission of getting the model down to five statements um, and and he and his group said, if if people cannot tell you what the competencies are, then they will not be implemented properly. So it can't be any more than five competencies. So competency models per se are being abandoned. And if if you think through, and and many people who are listening to this won't understand this, but in the Lumminger competency model. So we had 67 competencies in our library that covered everything from janitor up to CEO of the board. And on hindsight, Mike and I and Roger looked at that list of 67 and its languaging was psychologies. It was personnel talk. 
And in order for a line person to use the library, they had to do a card sort and figure out which 13 to 15 of the 67 applied to the job they were trying to staff. And then an HR professional would have to translate what managerial courage meant, because that's not a term used by the line. Right. So Roger and I said, okay, um, let's have practices instead of competencies. And practices, the, the requirement of practices is that it's expressed in the language of the line. That is, in a line meeting, you would probably hear these words. And they're observable. So uh, we have 92 practices in the three libraries in Team Intelligent. And for the most part, they're expressed in line language. And you don't have to do a card sort of a library because the library is specifically designed for jobs at the level at which you're considering. And you don't need an interpreter because the practice is stated in your language, in your Wikipedia that's in your brain. So there is competency fatigue in the marketplace. Um, and of course, that could be a combination of competencies that don't work or weren't implemented properly or weren't programmatically managed in the proper way. Uh, but we pretty much decided two years ago that it would be a mistake to come into the market, even, even with the most excellent competencies that have ever been developed from a marketing standpoint and a penetration standpoint that probably wouldn't have been smart. So uh, we don't have competencies, we have practices. I love what you guys have done with those definitions and made those again in the language of the line and made them level specific. It makes a lot of sense. I've shared that with some clients and it's uh, it, it's an easy it's an easy sell because it makes sense. Yeah. Bob, yeah. one more question as we go down memory lane here is in terms of where we are with HR and and uh, some of these issues. We've talked about the nine cell. We've talked about competencies. Uh, back in the day, we had a conversation, or you and Mike had a running dialogue with um, uh, Marcus Buckingham. And uh, yeah. Yeah, the idea for, again, some of our colleagues, younger colleagues is um, what does development mean? Uh, Lominger was on one side of the argument, you know, you have to uh, make sure that there are uh, issues that where you're weak, that you have development, developmental issues, you need to fix those. Marcus Buckingham on the other one, on the other hand was saying, really, it's a matter of playing to your strengths. Why don't you summarize the, the argument and where, we at, where we're at today? The uh, strengths movement is alive and well. Um, I could be much richer right now if I had created the strengths movement because it's easy to sell. You go into companies and say, uh, how do you guys like doing performance uh, appraisals annually? I hate it. Okay. Uh, how, do you, how do you feel about having tough conversations with employees? We hate it. Okay, let's stop doing that. I've got a system where each employee goes out on the internet and takes a uh, self-appraisal on 34 life themes and finds their five strengths. And then we find a place in the company where those five strengths are needed and they plan their entire career against uh, those five strengths. Well, that isn't what leaders did. So we knew it was incorrect based on the 13-year study of leadership at the center in the lessons of experience. And I and others uh, read or did articles, and I did a research study, and I said, okay, of the 34 life themes, which, as you know, includes woo, W-O-O, which uh, we know as uh, personal power and influence, but it's woo, um, we picked out the five 
life themes that describe VP and leadership jobs. And then we went into our database of 100,360s with voices. And that study said that 2.8% of people we assessed, these were also leaders at the time, have those five strengths. So you wouldn't have enough people. It, it was 2.5% of the entire population that ever took voices. And these are appraisals from seven people who knew them. It's not self-appraisal. So the strengths, I, and and you and I and others in the audience have done a thousand coaching assignments in our life. I have never been presented with the issue of convincing someone who their strengths are, what their strengths are. Absolutely true. So I have spent a thousand coaching events helping people think through their weaknesses and putting through a developmental plan to fix those. So finding your strengths, any college sophomore can find their strengths. That That isn't what leads to leadership. What leads to leadership is struggling through challenge and developing strengths you don't even know about when you go to college that are going to be needed. And going back to Mark, uh, uh, Marshall Goldsmith of what got you here won't get you there. At least three times in your career, from college to individual contributor, from individual contributor to manager and manager to senior leader, you're going to have to change your strengths three times. Hmm. Now, if the strengths movement would teach you've got strengths and weaknesses, what you need to do is figure out on your career track, what are the five roles or jobs that you think you want to have between now and then, and do a card sort on the 34 life themes and compare it to your current uh, life themes that, that you think you're strong in, uh, and look at the gaps and plan a development program to work on your strength gaps, then, then the strengths movement would work. And uh, I'm quite familiar uh, with the 34 themes. Uh, there's nothing wrong with them. I wouldn't have called it woo, but putting that aside, um, uh, they're, they're probably research-based. I mean, strategy and planning and listening and EQ, all of the, all of the stuff's in there. Um, so there's nothing wrong with the 34 themes. It's the theory that I can go find an accurate set of my five strengths by myself by filling out a questionnaire. We all know that that is not scientifically defendable. That's false nudes. Only CNN would cover that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we agree on so, that. Bob. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's not true. That is that is a false scientific statement. There will not be a vaccine for finding your own five strengths. Now, if if the strengths movement used the 360, now you got something else. Right. If if you had five people tell me what my five strengths are, okay, that now now I have my five strengths. You still have the problem that those are individual contributor strengths and they're not manager strengths or leader strengths. So if, if I want to make $100,000 a year and have my name in the parking place, I need a different set of strengths than these five. So I also need a development plan while I'm using my current strengths to make money. But at the same time, in parallel, I have to develop additional strengths because what got me here will not get me there. Really well said. Bob, there is just one more topic as you were, as you were talking. It, it, um, I was thinking about the work that you and Roger are doing, and that's the role of technology. 
we've talked about it a little bit, and I think some of the HR folks think that uh, technology really is already in place with uh, these big databases that we have, the HRIS systems. But when it comes to technology and we say things like artificial intelligence or a data analytics, oh, that's, that's not really relevant to me. That's, that's not going to affect my world. And I think, obviously, these things are affecting HR, but perhaps uh, people don't know how technology really is going to impact them uh, in terms of the talent management area. And I know work, for example, you and Roger have developed apps for the iPad, uh, and some of the technology I've seen is, is, is fantastic. Why don't you talk a little bit about, uh, uh, as our final topic, the role of technology in talent management? I think there's a couple of things forming. One is gaming. And game technology added to assessing people, especially with uh, virtual reality, we can get much more accurate if somebody's watching a computer-generated scene of the application of EQ and somebody watching a good application of EQ and a bad application of EQ and responding to it, or even an advanced VR, I'm in the scene. I'm one of the players. <laughs> so I, I think uh, technology is going to play in assessment and uh, self-awareness. And self-awareness, of course, is one of the key characteristics of leadership. The second thing is human capital analytics. Um, I would have had sort of that same viewpoint, but uh, one of my clients has a human capital analytics department. <laughs> So that fascinated me. Uh, so I met with them and they're collecting data without a purpose. So they have engagement data on everyone. They've got performance appraisal on everyone. They've got 360s on everyone. They've got other kinds of data. And I say without a purpose because every once in a while they stop and push a SAS button and the SAS button says what particular 360 results correlates to high engagement. And they are coming up with absolutely phenomenal insights based on machine learning uh, that is well beyond any research study you could design. And if if we've got 100 to the Fortune 500 with human capital analytics departments who are collecting bio data and evaluation data and testing data and engagement data and survey data and number of complaints filed and whatever else they're keeping track of, uh, then you run a regression backwards on who ended up being evaluated C-suite executive. I think they're going to end up with the same list Roger and I have come up, but they'll have a couple of things in there that Roger and I didn't find. So when they take their database and say, here's 10 people who made it to the C-suite and their value-added officers, and they go back 10 years and look at what their engagement surveys look like, and which, which of the 12 engagement items most predicted success in the C-suite 10 years later? I mean, it's just, it's the amount of quality information is going to be phenomenal. Now, we are, it's the same problem of knowing everything there is to know about talent management, but you can't get anybody's attention at the strategic table. There is still a whole set of characteristics having to do with a CHRO and his or her group being able to implement database evidence-supported programming. So, HR is missing 
how can we say this nicely? HR is missing executive presence, gravitas, chutzpah, power at the table. I'm glad you said it nicely. Yeah, they're, they're academically qualified. They could pass a test on career management. They could answer questions on career management. But uh, going back to the strengths movement, do they have the woo necessary to convince eight executives who initially, when you were on the agenda, they were not they were not looking forward to your PowerPoint. And after your PowerPoint, they all signed on to uh, give you the budget to do this special talent management initiative that you want to do to make sure that the forward strategy of the organization is uh, manned with the kind of people necessary to make it successful. That I don't see as much of that as we need, uh, which would lead me to believe that SHRM and ASTD and HRPS and uh, the the Management Academy, I'm sure they have it, but but that but they need an executive presence workshop, seminar, conference, webcast, book. We need personal power and influence. Woo for HR. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that would probably sell. <laughs> we can co-author that. Bob, last question before I let you go. Just as you reflect back uh, on your career, uh, what's the one thing you wished you had learned earlier? Uh, it's who you know, not what you do. Uh, it's the quality of networking and the necessity of being interconnected. It's sort of like the synaptic design of your brain. Uh, I th- I thought in my early career that good work spoke for itself, and that is not true. Uh, good work is a threshold characteristic, but a lot of the promotions I saw and a lot of the advantages that people gained in their career was based on having a mentor or a sponsor or being networked into a, an influential group. Uh, it puts introverts at a disadvantage. Uh, it's an, uh, networking is easier for extroverts. Um, so I think the one thing that surprised me when I watched how enterprises function and how careers develop is the advantage of networking. And th- I mean, the other surprise is data doesn't carry the day. That surprised me. Uh, being being a, a academic PhD uh, in my early years, I thought if you put up a PowerPoint with sufficient data and evidence that everybody in the room would vote for the program, and that wasn't the case. And that's why I think HR, woo for HR, uh, is probably a good offer. So, Bob, I appreciate you taking the time. This has been a fascinating conversation. I know we could go on, but uh, you've been very generous, and, and I appreciate it. Any uh, final words for you in the, in the audience? Well, I think uh, we have evidence, we have science, uh, we have a set of tools. Uh, many vendors uh, have equivalent tools, so it's not. I'm not saying mine is the only one. Uh, what's left is execution. Uh, I think we know what, and my area of specialties, which is succession planning and high potentials, we know exactly what it is. We know how to see it. We know how to hire it. Uh, we know how to develop it. Uh, there should be no shortage of C-suite candidates that are going to be better than the people they replace. Um, the only way in which that doesn't happen is if we collectively do not carry this technology into our organizations and implement. 
Bob, I really appreciate it, Doug. Uh, very insightful. It was a real, uh, it was a real pleasure, and uh, look forward to talking to you soon. Thank you, Michael. Bye now.